0: Welcome to the Travel Diary, Learning Journey to the Human Mind podcast, episode 7. So first, a quick update. Uh, The results for trimester 2 are out, and I've got two high distinctions, which in Australia is equivalent to two A's, so I hope that slightly increases my credibility with these podcasts, that uh, they should be largely accurate. So today's episode is on intelligence, which is one of the most controversial areas, if not arguably the most controversial area in psychology. So, of course, the first challenge when you're studying intelligence is to define what is intelligence, because really fundamentally, it's a subjective word, and you can define it in any number of ways. Apparently, back in 1921, a group of experts came together to try to reach a consensus. Kind of reminds me of that story I heard back in philosophy class in university when a group of uh, philosophers got together in Greece to decide on a definition of the word man. Or When they say man, they meant human. And um, they came up with the decision, the unanimous decision that it was a featherless biped. But then one of the naughty philosophers who wasn't invited, kind of beneficent in um, Sleeping Beauty, got a chicken, um, plucked it, free of feathers and threw it over the wall. And when they saw it, they realized they had to start again from scratch. Anyway, back to, back to intelligence from that little diversion. So in 1921, they got together and they, they basically failed to come to an agreement. But generally speaking, their ideas about intelligence involved the ability to learn from the environment, to adapt and to function in one's environment in um, this difficulty with uh, the defining what intelligence was led to what was what is known as the boring definition of 1923 not boring because it's not interesting but boring because the psychologist who came up with this definition his surname was boring this is an interesting surname i wonder if that meant that historically one of his forefathers was very boring and he said Uh, Tongue-in-cheek, of course, intelligence is what intelligence tests measure. But anyway, it's uh, just as applicable as any other definition, I suppose. So the history of how intelligence has been measured, or the attempts to measure intelligence, begins really with Sir Francis Galton, born in 1822. And I believe he was a cousin to Charles Darwin. And he believed that intelligence was something that was adaptable, or adaptive, and therefore it was heritable like any other feature, like your ability to run fast or having sharp horns. And he was the first to attempt a systematic uh, effort to measure intelligence. But he based his tests on simple perceptual sensory motor Abilities, which he believed were the the building blocks. He also was the father of some of the key, even though he actually wasn't. He was like an amateur psychologist, but he came up with some of the real important foundational blocks, building blocks of psychology. For example, he was the first, I think, to use twin study, which is very important for studying the heritability of um, any particular phenotype, and also he came up with a statistical analysis on correlation. Uh, And actually, interestingly, it was his own statistical um, innovation which disproved his own theory, because the results of his experiments were not correlated at all with anything, including uh, social class or school success. In 1905, we had the next iteration, which was Alfred Binet, who developed the Binet scale in France. And this was a highly practical endeavor, because um, it arose from a certain need when in France they introduced, I think, mass compulsory education, and they wanted a test to see which students might need to go to special school, because they had some sort of learning disability and had to catch up. And um, his tests was more akin to the test, the, the kind of IQ related tests we have today. They were more complex tasks of memory and comprehension and judgment. And he came up with the idea of mental age. So, the age where typically the, the child would be able to perform certain cognitive tasks. So, if a, a child was particularly bright, they might be uh, seven years old, but they might have a mental age of 10 if they can do tasks that typically a 10-year-old could do. Now, the, um, another innovation then in this uh, chronology was um, Turnman's adaptation in the US with the Stanford-Binet scale of 1916. And he introduced the idea of intelligence quotient IQ, which originally really was a quotient. So the formula basically was that IQ equals the mental age divided by your calendar age times 100 so for example if you were seven years old and you had the mental a- mental age of a seven year old so you really your cognitive abilities was suitable for your age then your iq was 100 if you were seven years old but you could do the test as if you were 14 year old then you'd have an iq of 200. already you can see that um, this becomes a little bit problematic, especially as the child gets older. For example, if a child was five years ahead, then um, at the age of 10, if she was, had the mental age of 15, uh, her IQ would be 150. Even if she were to maintain this five-year lead, as she got older, the IQ would actually drop. And obviously, as you became uh, as you went to the late adolescence, it doesn't make any sense anymore because there's not much difference between a 30-year-old's cognitive ability and a 25-year-old's cognitive ability. And eventually, actually over time, you are, your, some of your cognitive faculties might um, decrease as you get into the late uh, age, late uh, part of your life. So another um, innovation was by Weschler. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, David Weschler, W-E-C-H-S-L-E-R. And so he came up with the idea of IQ that we have today, that it's basically um, like a, on a bell curve, on of, of a frequency chart compared to y- your peers and where you rank uh, within it. So 100 would be uh, right in the middle, and then one standard deviation high would be 115 and 130. Is two standard divisions up and so forth. And that's, of course, the system that we use today. When IQ tests came in the US, it went through certain changes. It was used for other purposes for the first time besides just um, trying to evaluate uh, children's readiness for school. It was used a lot in the army in World War One to quickly determine if people were mentally fit for military service and also who would make good officers it started also being used in sort of uh pencil and paper variations that some of us might be um familiar with uh before that it was all sort of one on one quite intensive kind of tests and it was the idea that IQ tests were not just uh, limited to the academic sphere, academic sphere but also it could test general intellectual ability and could predict general success in life. So some of the uh, modern intelligence tests uh, include the Stanford-Binet test, which is still used, but it's not as widely used anymore. It's not the test of choice. Then you have the uh, the Wechler tests, which are very common. Um, there are the um, W A I S. Uh, tests, Weschler Adult Intelligence Scale, and that's for 16 to 90-year-olds. You've got the WISC, W-I-S-C, and that's for children. That stands for Weschler Intelligence Test Scale for uh, Children. And then there's the WPPSI, which I don't know how to pronounce, which, is, which stands for Weschler uh, Preschool and Primary Scale of Intelligence. And uh, there's also something called the Ravens Progressive Matrices, which is also pretty common. And these are are good for international situations because they're nonverbal, and um, so and they're quite easy. They're intuitive to understand. They can be done on a computer as well, so it's easy to administer. And that also has different variations for children and adults or adolescents. So the, um, with the Weschler tests, I should really learn how to pronounce this before I, do it. <laughs> before I started this uh, podcast. The Weschler tests uh, have, are subdivided, so they cover verbal comprehension, perceptual reasoning, and uh, working memory and uh, processing speed. So verbal comprehensions includes things like vocabulary tests, perceptual reasoning, I think it's kind of more like um, maybe some sort of spatial kind of tests, uh, looking at blocks rotated or, you know, fitting in patterns and stuff like that. Working memory includes things like, um, you know, remembering a certain number of digits, but then also remembering them, but backwards, which I think for me would be very difficult. Uh, And uh, processing speed includes things like looking for certain um, symbols. Now, modern intelligence tests these days are used primarily in educational and developmental settings to plan interventions, to facilitate appropriate uh, opportunities for education. It's also used in healthcare and rehab settings, for example after brain injury, measuring people's uh, functionalities and also in organizational settings. So, for example, career counseling, uh, recruitment process, identifying strengths and weaknesses and aligning jobs with the individuals. Intellectual disability is defined as someone with an IQ less than 70, so less than two standard deviations. And also, not just an IQ, it's important, um, also includes a deficit in adaptive functioning that was evident in childhood and occurs in more than one domain, for example, communicating with others, living autonomously, interacting socially, etc. So there are people who have IQs less than 70 who still have practical intelligence, which we'll get to later. They can still deal with sort of everyday... Life and can take care of themselves. On the other hand, giftedness reply uh, refers generally to an IQ of greater than two standard deviations. That's greater than hundred and thirty. My sister joined Mensa, and I believe the requirement to join Mensa is to have an IQ of greater than hundred thirty. We also talked about how, about the idea of genius or kind of um, particularly salient giftedness, which happens when individuals combine a talent with an incredible amount of time and effort invested to maximizing that talent. So I guess it's kind of like Thomas Edison's notion of genius being 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration, though I think in his case, it was rather self-serving because he was kind of making a claim that he was a genius. I guess that famous story of him trying like 10,000 different materials to create uh, for the the filament inside a light bulb. Anyway, um, this perseverance and passion for long-term goals and for long-term personal development is referred to by psychologists as grit, which I think is quite popular in comments of parlance these days. We also covered in this trimester creativity which is very difficult to describe, define, or even to measure. One idea is that you approximate it by measuring divergent thinking, the ability to think of different of possibilities. For example, if you are given a paperclip, you have to, you know, how many possible uses for the paperclip can you think of? Interestingly, with these tests, It's only moderately correlated with intelligence. When it comes to IQ tests, many people roll their eyes and declare that IQ tests only measure how well you do IQ tests. But it's clear to me, having started this topic, that it does actually measure something meaningful. For one thing, uh, it passes the reliability test, which means, and, and in psychology, reliability means the ability for the test to give you consistent results over time. So, for example, even for childhood where there's a lot of development happening, at, uh, the child taking the tests three years apart will get very similar results. It also passes the validity tests. The validity refers to how well it correlates with something external in the real world. Well, there's two validity, there's internal, external validity so external validity refers to how well it correlates with something in the real world and the correlation between iq tests and school grades is extremely high it's up, up to about uh, 0.7 a correlational coefficient one mean being a perfect one i think uh, if you refer to my earlier podcast i think it was episode four on statistics it goes i go over that a little bit And this is about as strong a correlation as you can get in psychology. So I think it's about the same as the correlation between height and weight. And in the olden days, psychologists, when I say olden days, not that long ago, psychologists used to believe that IQ tests, yeah, sure, it predicted your success at school, but that was it. But more and more, I think there is evidence to show that it correlates with General success, occupational success—you know how much money you make. It's even somewhat, I think, correlated with uh, your how well adapted and settled you become in the future with your personal life. Slightly interestingly, when they've done studies with um, people going to war, people with higher IQ tend to get PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, less often. So there are it, it obviously is measuring something, and the question is just what do you call that? Do you call it intelligence? Because intelligence itself has so much social and emotional, emotive baggage to it. And other uh, criticisms of IQ is that it's, it's too culture-biased, and there have been attempts to design what they call a culture-free test, which means stripping away so cultural... Um, elements, or a culture fair test, which is measuring, trying to measure skills, and knowledge that are common across different cultures. And I think it's improving, but there are, obviously, it's impossible to remove the, the influence of culture entirely. So next, we'll look at uh, different approaches to intelligence. And um, when it comes to sub IQ tests, I think this kind of reflects what they call a psychometric approach, and this is the data-driven approach. So instead of starting with an overarching paradigm of what is intelligence and then trying to figure out how to measure it, you look at all the tests that people already do, all the IQ tests, all the intelligence tests that people already do, and then you do statistical analysis on that, what they call factor analysis, where you look at. Um, for example, if there if there are two abilities, for example, um, vocabulary and um, reading comprehension, for example, they will be extremely highly correlated, obviously, and so they both reflect an underlying ability that's more foundational. And if you do that over greater and greater number of intelligence tests, then you can get to sort of the trunk of that um, of that tree, the the most important common factors to it. And when they do factor analysis, the first person to do factor analysis was Charles Spearman um, in, I think, well, it must be in the early 20th century. And he proposed the two-factor theory of intelligence. He said that all of these tests, even things that intuitively shouldn't be correlated, for example, math and English, right? Because people normally think, oh, well, you know, some people are like math-inclined, some people are like English-lit english lit uh, Majors—they're very, very different people. But the evidence suggests otherwise. That if you're good at math, you're more likely to be good at English. It doesn't mean that you'd be equally good. You're going to be much better at one than the other. But being good at one actually make is correlated with being good in the in other fields as well. And he said the reason for all of this must mean that there is something known as the G factor, which is general intelligence. It's that aspect of all those other sub. Categories which are correlated with each other. It's the thing that explains why they all are related. But because they're not perfectly related, because there are certain differences, the differences must relate to what he called specific intelligence or the S factor. And it seems and it appears in sort of brain scanning experiments that there is something special about G factor because when People were presented with certain tests, certain questions. Some of them were related to general intelligence. Some of them were not. And these are both, I think, verbal and visual tests. When the subjects did the G-factor tests, their frontal lobes really lit up much more than for the non-G-factor. So it appears that G-factor is something real because, number one, it's correlated with all inter- all intelligence tests and second of all it seems to be primarily based on activity in our frontal lobe the um, trouble with factor analysis is that uh, depending on who does it and which categories he or she uses you could easily come up with um, different results and there are a number of competing uh, psychometric theories one of them is known as the gfgc gc theory And it uh, actually separates general intelligence into two types. One is the fluid intelligence and the other being crystallized intelligence. So fluid intelligence refers to uh, intelligence that has no specific content. It's just kind of information processing, drawing inferences, problem solving, that sort of thing and um, crystallized intelligence, as its name suggests, is the actual store of knowledge that you have. And people who support this theory say it's very important to distinguish between these two because you see as humans get older, especially into sort of late adulthood, their fluid intelligence drops and their crystallized intelligence increases because they're building on their body of knowledge but their general intelligence stays the same. So it, it's important to acknowledge the different proportions, the different compositions within general intelligence. The GFGC theory also has more specific factors, uh, seven of them, uh, including short-term memory, long-term memory, visual processing, auditory processing, processing speed, uh, decision speed and uh, quantitative knowledge, which basically means math. There are a number of other theories, such as Carroll's three stratum theory, which I want to get into, and apparently, more recently, there is the cattell Horn Carroll CHC theory of intelligence. Um, and all of these theories including the CHC i think in particular have been used to help inform the development of IQ tests including the um, Stanford-Binet and the, the Wechsler Adult Intelligence Scales Now there are other possible approaches to intelligence the other another being the information processing approach So as I said before the psychometric approach starts with all the tests and then constructs a theory around it. The information processing approach is top down, so it's based upon uh, what cognitive psychologists see as being the the basis for intelligence, and they focus on three variables, one being speed of processing, which is strongly correlated with um, IQ, so one possible way to you can measure speed of processing is if you saw uh, pairs of letters, uh, some of them will be uppercase and lowercase. And um, some of them would be the same letter, some of them will be different letters. And you have to identify as quickly as possible, whether they are identically identical physically. So for example, capital A, capital A, or whether they're identical only in name, capital A, small a. And the speed of processing is something that unfortunately decreases in the later years of adulthood. So I think mine must be suffering a bit. They also focus on knowledge base, which is really, I think, the crystallized knowledge of the GFGC theory. But the important thing I think to highlight here is that knowledge base is not just about how much information that you've got stored and locked away in your brain, but how accessible it is for retrieval. And I realize that's a really important part of intelligence because we might have a lot of stuff crammed in there, but if you don't access them access them at the right time and the, um, the right moment, then they, you might as well not have them. And finally, they focus on ability to acquire and apply cognitive strategies, which is um, an interesting one. So these are sort of mental shortcuts that uh, people use. For example, if you're trying to calculate 15% of something, you might uh, add 10% and make it 10% first and then add half of that. So it's little mental shortcuts. And that's one of the things that distinguishes children from adults and individuals of different IQ levels. Next, we have uh, multi-factor theories of intelligence. So these are theories that reject sort of the more what they would probably perceive as being the narrow idea of intelligence being measured in IQ tests and wanting to encompass a more broad uh, definition of what intelligence is. For example, there is Sternberg's triarchic theory of intelligence, which identifies three types. Analytical intelligence, which is really... Kind of what's measured in IQ tests and which is important for academic success. Creative intelligence, which means the ability to come up with new ideas, novel solutions. And practical intelligence, which deals with sort of everyday uh, problems and finding common sense solutions to them. And uh, these three overlap, but in primarily, I think, analytical and practical overlap and analytical and creative overlap so analytically sort of in the in the core of it i think there's also Gardner's theory of multiple intelligence and he really goes to town he identifies musical intelligence bodily or kinesthetic intelligence which involves control over body and movement like dancers or sports people spatial uh, intelligence which is sort of like your your mental maps linguistic and verbal intelligence, logical and mathematical intelligence, intrapersonal intelligence, which is self-understanding, interpersonal intelligence, which is social skills. He added uh, naturalistic intelligence, which uh, involves the understanding of patterns and processes in the environment. And he's um, left it open for possibly adding spiritual slash existential intelligence so one of the criteria that he's used for coming up with these intelligences, is the existence of savants or prodigies with talents in specific areas and also a distinctive developmental course. For example, Mozart could write music before he could read, and therefore he, he reasoned that the systems in our brain that are involved in musical difference, the musical intelligence must be different from those that process language. However, there's not great uh, evidence, empirical evidence for this model of intelligence, and it actually tends to be the case that even these tends, tends to cluster. At the end of the day, I think, it just comes back. We are, we are arguing over the definition of a subjective word, and I think that's the fundamental problem, because a subject, it's a subjective idea of intelligence, And um, we can define it any number of ways that we want. We also discussed in the class emotional intelligence, which in Gardner's theory really is um, a combination of the intrapersonal and the interpersonal intelligence. And there's been a lot of talk about the importance of so-called EQ, and many would argue that it's even more important than IQ. Certainly, it's been overlooked in most traditional definitions of intelligence, and it's, it is important. It's important, especially when you're working with other people, when you're working in, in teams. What in exactly is emotional intelligence? It's generally viewed as being the ability to understand and to manage one's own emotions, and also the ability to read and understand other people's emotions as well. Some would argue that it's not something that we're born innately with, but that we learn it through experience and social interactions. Others would argue that it's actually not intelligence, but it's an aspect of personality. But uh, whatever its root definition, Emotional intelligence does appear to be related to higher life satisfaction, lower levels of stress, and greater coping abilities. So, is intelligence inherited or is it learned? And here we go back to Sir Francis Galton's twin studies, which are still used. Uh, I have to start off with a couple of definitions monozygotic twins are basically identical twins. So they share exactly the same uh, genetic makeup. And dizygotic twins, which means uh, fraternal twins, so they share half of their genetic makeup. And so twin studies are very important in helping to tease out the difference between nature and nurture. So if we look at the... Correlation of intelligence, uh, IQ scores, or intelligence between dizygotic twins and normal siblings because they both share the same amount of DNA, the dizygotic twins have a closer correlation. So the difference must be the environment because parents will tend to treat twins more similarly. And also, the correlation between monozygotic twins is greater than between dizygotic twins. But this could be arguably also due to the environment because if um, twins are identical, they're more likely to be treated the same by their parents. But interestingly, identical twins that were reared apart, so if one of them was adopted out, have actually an even higher correlation 0.75 which is through the roof than dizygotic twins read together. So in all the analysis in all the twin studies it's clear that genes plays the lion's share of the influence on intelligence. Indeed if you have monozygotic twins take IQ tests then their scores are as highly as highly correlated as one individual taking an IQ test on two different occasions. So a couple of caveats. The first is that uh, these measures of heritability. And heritability just means the percentage of the variation between members of a population which are due to uh, genetic factors so when we measure or estimate the heritability of intelligence some people argue that this is actually overstated they don't deny that genetics plays a role but that it's actually its influence is overestimated. and the reason being that our environment and our genes are not mutually exclusive because our genes affects the people that we become friends with, the circles that we frequent, the activities that we do, and therefore there is a kind of a multiplying effect where our genes is then uh, reinforced by the kind of environment, by, by controlling the kind of environment in which we grow up. The other caveat is that these sorts of heritability coefficients apply within particular populations, but it cannot be extended, extrapolated between populations. And this is where we get to the real controversial crux of the intelligence study, group differences. And in particular, the group differences between different ethnic or racial groups. Because it's been consistently shown that uh, white Americans have higher IQ than African Americans. I think they say it's fifteen point difference. Is what it says in my textbook. That's one standard deviation. And similarly, African students in South Africa routinely score lower than Euro Americans. Uh, Similarly, for Indigenous Australians as well. So you can see where this this is leading, if the differences between individuals in a, within a population is predominantly due to genetics and biology doesn't mean that white Americans, for example, are just genetically and biologically more intelligent than African Americans, and for all the other marginalized groups throughout the world and what is clear is that we don't know. We don't know to what extent genes and or the environment plays a factor. But what we do know is that you can't assume that it's genetic. The example that I read about is say there are two populations. In one population people are malnourished, and the other population they're it's a first world country, they're well fed. Within each population, there would be a distribution of height. And as you know, height is highly genetic. So if you look at population A, and you look at the variation of height, you will find that it's highly heritable. Taller people will have uh, taller children. If you look at population B, it's also very heritable. Taller people will have taller children, but then you can't say, the average of population A is lower than the average of population B, and therefore the difference is genetic because there is a kind of a, a confounding factor, which is the level of nutrition. And the level of nutrition, the environment actually distinguishes the difference. That it explains the difference between the two groups. So Just because genetics plays the predominant role within a population does not necessarily mean it has to play the, uh, the predominant role between groups. And there are lots of examples of how mutable actually intelligence can be, there is something, for example, known as the Flynn effect, where IQ has been rising about three points a decade across all industrialized countries. Uh, also, when uh, African Americans uh, moved north uh, between World War One and Two, those families which moved north to Philadelphia they gained between 0.5 to 0.7 IQ points every year that they were enrolled in Philadelphia schools. When they've done studies of people who, have, who are from some mixed ethnicity groups, they found that the percentage of their genes, which were African-American, did not, was not correlated at all with intelligence. Similarly, when African-American soldiers fought in Europe and they had children with German women, their children did not suffer from any IQ deficits. There is a group of Japanese people, and I forgot their name of their group, but they are marginalized within Japan, just like uh, African Americans have been historically in America. And they have a deficit of about the same, I guess about one standard deviation below the rest of the Japanese population. Interestingly, when they migrate to, the, to America and they no longer face the same discrimination, they have about the same IQ as Japanese Americans. So there is a lot of evidence, perhaps circumstantial evidence, that the environment plays a much, much, much greater role in differences between groups than um, you would think from some of these um, heritability studies. But the jury still out. And, and we don't know. It's somewhere from sort of zero to 100%, we don't know w- where it lies in between. And some people I've heard, for example, with the Flynn effect argue that the, the change in IQ, there is a mutable part of IQ, but that reflects non well the S-factor, the specific intelligence, and that uh, the G-factor, the general intelligence, is much less mutable. Another interesting thing about the heritability of IQ is that it increases with age. So, for example, uh, if you are adopted by a different family, as a child, the, your adoptive family will influence your IQ more. But as you, as you get older, you're, you'll become more and more correlated with your biological parents' IQ. So, specifically, heritability of IQ in children is about 0.45 and it goes up to 0.75 in adulthood. Anyway, we will, on that note, conclude this uh, episode. So next episode will be on topic 8 of the Intro to Psych 2 unit, which is on cross-cultural psychology. So until next time, bye for now.